I take for my text this Lord's Day Paul's letter to the Philippians, chapter 1, verses 15 through 18. Some indeed preach Christ even of envy and strife, and some also of goodwill. The one preach Christ of contention, not sincerely, supposing to add affliction to my bonds, but the other of love, knowing that I am set for the defense of the gospel. What then? Notwithstanding every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is preached. And I therein do rejoice, yea, and will rejoice. This Lord's Day we come to the third part in the series on occasional hearing. And we will consider further objections that are offered in defense of the practice of occasionally visiting churches and receiving ordinances from ministers who have departed from the doctrine, worship, and government found in Scripture and in biblical confessions, directories for public worship, forms of church government, and covenants like those of the Westminster Standards. And I've made a point to emphasize this in the two previous sermons and in case someone should happen to get this particular tape in isolation from the others. I do want to make it absolutely clear, and I've done so throughout this series. You have been reminded time and again that it is not because we consider those who are members in other churches, even reformed churches, We do not consider them because we cannot worship with them, because we cannot accept the ministry of their ministers. We do not consider them to be non-Christians. For we affirm that there are many Christians and even unfaithful churches. Nor is it because we do not love these brethren who are members of unfaithful churches that we refuse to worship with them in their churches. Nor is it because we think we are so much better than they or more spiritual than they that we cease from joining with them in worship. It is because and only because to do so would be to be unfaithful to Christ who has commanded us to cease from hearing the words which cause to err from the 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 knowledge of truth and who has commanded us as well through his apostle to withdraw from ministers who cause division in the body of Christ contrary to the doctrine which we have received. It is not out of hatred then for our brethren, but rather out of love that we testify against their errors and their sins, hoping to reclaim them and draw them into unity in the truth with us. Nor do we maintain that a church or ministry be 
absolutely perfect and sinless before we can join with them in public worship, as we shall see from our text today. But we do confess that we cannot unite in worship with those churches and ministers who have backslidden from the doctrine, worship, and government found in Scripture and taught in faithful standards like those of the Westminster Standards. It has been suggested by some that it cannot be wrong to attend occasionally a reformed church, a church that professes to be reformed, and to listen to their minister. Even though he may be in our judgment and faithful in certain matters of doctrine, worship, or government, and it's not wrong to attend, so it is suggested, because he is yet a minister of Christ who has been called and sent to preach the gospel. Well, before we look at our text, let me simply respond to this, and our text, I think, will build further upon this particular objection. Although, dear ones, we might sincerely applaud certain aspects of the ministry of a church and a minister. For example, if he has firmly laid the foundation in his ministry by declaring that salvation is only secured by God's grace through faith alone in the Lord Jesus Christ. Dear ones, we rejoice in that. We rejoice in that fact that that is being proclaimed. Or if he has exhibited a love for the Lord and for God's people, we rejoice in that as well. And although, dear ones, we might love him as a brother in the Lord Jesus Christ, nevertheless, when such a minister departs from sound doctrine in other areas, that's not the only issue that pertains to sound doctrine. When he departs from sound doctrine in other areas, for example, a profession of the perpetual obligation of biblical covenants sworn on our behalf as descendants of those original covenanters who took the solemn league and covenant. Or when he backslides from pure worship, such as backsliding from praising God by singing inspired psalms and without musical instruments, or when he abandons faithful church government, such as a church government that strives to see Christ's church united by means of a covenanted reformation throughout the world, when he departs from these truths of Scripture, we are given an explicit Command, Not a casual suggestion, but a, an explicit command by the Apostle Paul. In Romans 16, 17, Now I beseech you, brethren, mark them which cause divisions and offenses contrary to the doctrine which ye have learned, and avoid them. For dear ones, 
When such departures from the faith occur in a minister that professes to be sent by Christ, it is evident that he has departed from his commission. What was his commission from Christ? His commission from Christ, as is true of every minister, is this, teaching them to observe all things whatsoever I have commanded you. And I submit to you that in one sense, it is worse for a man to violate his commission from Christ than to have no commission at all. Why? Because I believe the error taught by one who has a commission, but has violated that commission, the error taught by that one will be more readily received by others than by one who has no commission. A woman, for example, who usurps the place of authority becomes a minister. How many who are concerned at all for the truth will listen to her? as opposed to one who has violated his commission. You see, dear ones, Christ sent forth ministers and commissioned them to deliver his words faithfully. But if they profess, I should say, if we as ministers profess and teach that which is contrary to the teaching of Christ and to the faithful summaries of Christ's teaching, such as the Westminster Standards, they ought to be censured. We ought to be censured if we depart from those standards by a faithful church. And if a church will not do so because itself tolerates and subscribes to those same errors of that minister, then it is to be avoided and withdrawn from. That is our only alternative if we would be faithful. And I mentioned earlier that even Reformed churches, even churches professing to be Reformed, should be separated from, should not be occasionally visited. Their ministers should not be those to whom we go to hear preaching and to receive the ordinances while they are in their unfaithful and unrepentant state. And that would go for various Reformed denominations the Orthodox Presbyterian Church, the Presbyterian Church in America, the Reformed Presbyterian Church of North America, the Free Church of Scotland, the Free Presbyterian Church of Scotland, the Associate Presbyterian Church of Scotland, the Canadian Reformed Church, the Christian Reformed Church, the Protestant Reformed Church. You see, dear ones, churches, regardless of the title, if they have departed from what that title represents and means from Scripture and from our forefathers, they have departed from the truth. They are walking in error and obstinately doing so.
If Peter had continued in his error, which he promoted in Antioch in bringing in a sinful division within the church by refusing to eat with the Gentiles in Galatians 2, even after Paul's rebuke, I dare say that his error would have led Paul and all those who would be faithful to withdraw from Peter's ministry until he manifested repentance and reformation. Why? Because it was contrary to the teaching of Christ and contrary to Peter's commission from Christ. So you see, dear ones, the real question to ask concerning a minister whose ministry we should attend upon is this. Is he fulfilling the commission of Christ to teach what Christ has commanded in doctrine, worship and government? Not does he claim to have been sent by Christ and ordained by a professing Christian church. But is he fulfilling his commission that Christ gave to him? In the remaining time this Lord's Day, I would have you consider the following main points from, for our sermon this Lord's Day. First, Philippians 1 15 through 18 offers no place of refuge for occasional hearing. The second point, other objections offer no place of refuge for occasional hearing. And third, historical objections provide no place of refuge for occasional hearing. As we consider the first main point, we will be looking at our text in, first, in Philippians chapter 1, verses 15 through 18. <clears throat> and the reason this text is brought to your attention is because some <clears throat> would, would use this passage to teach that Paul sanctioned occasional hearing by encouraging the ministry of others with whom he disagreed. And we want to consider very closely what this text says and what it does not say. And so we will consider this as an objection and use this as our text this Lord's Day. In order to understand better the context which Paul addresses these words, we need to understand the theme of the letter to the Philippians. Paul writes this letter to the Philippians while imprisoned in Rome for faithfully, on his part, faithfully fulfilling the commission which was given him by the Lord Jesus Christ in proclaiming the truth and not cowering before man and not seeking the approval of men, but in seeking simply to be faithful to the Lord Jesus Christ in preaching and proclaiming the truth. And he writes to a small, beleaguered, struggling congregation in Philippi who are undergoing persecution and trial for the sake of the gospel. Paul's chief aim and end in this letter is to encourage the saints in Philippi with a message of joy, to lift their spirits, to encourage them right in the midst of their trials. 
not to take them out of their trials and say, now you can rejoice, but to leave them in their trial and say, you can still rejoice. The Christians in Philippi, you see, could either feel sorry for themselves and wallow in their self-pity because of what they were encountering, or they could set their minds upon the joy of knowing Christ in all of his riches of grace and mercy. They could either choose to view their trials as an opportunity to murmur against God's providence, or they could, on the other hand, choose to view their problems as an opportunity to praise God for the privilege of suffering for his most holy name. They could either let their minds and mouths wander into the sea of discontentment, or they could rather learn contentment in whatever circumstance God might bring them. Paul's admonition to them and to us as well, when we find ourselves overwhelmed by the attacks of the enemy, is this, in this letter, Rejoice! In the Lord, and again I say rejoice. Rejoice in the Lord always, and again I say rejoice. We need take no pleasure, dear ones, in suffering for suffering's sake. But we can and should take pleasure in suffering for the Lord Jesus Christ and His cause. Jesus says when we are persecuted and suffer for his cause, we are to leap for joy. In Luke 6, verses 22 and 23, we're to leap for joy. Is that your response to suffering for Christ? Well, I know I've got a lot of work that I need to do in that area as well. But you see, that's our goal to leap for joy when it is our privilege to suffer for the Lord Jesus Christ. Paul says, it is given unto you, in Philippians chapter 1, it is given to you not only to believe in his name, but to suffer for him. See, it is a gracious gift to believe. We're all ready for that gracious gift. But it doesn't end there. It is a gracious gift that God gives to us to suffer for His name. If you are seeking, dear ones, to find joy, if you're seeking to find contentment and peace and happiness in either people or in various circumstances in your life, you will never experience true joy. That's not to say that we should not enjoy the many blessings that God gives to us in this life. But if that is where you're going to find your joy, as if you, if you do not have those things, you will not be happy, content, and joyful, then something is drastically missing in your life. For both people and circumstances, dear ones, are changeable and alterable. Loved ones can die and be taken from this earth. We can lose financial resources. We can lose our health. We can lose our liberty and freedom. But we can never lose the Lord Jesus Christ. 
That is something that can never be taken from us. And when your joy depends not upon people or circumstances, but upon the Lord, you will rejoice in the Lord always. You see, Paul's theme and purpose in his whole life is stated for us in Philippians 1.21 when he says, For to me, to live is Christ, and to die is gain. To live for Paul was Christ. You see, if you put anything else in the place of Christ, remove Christ from that and say, for me to live is this, then can you say to die is gain? Absolutely not, because whatever you put in the place of Christ, you're going to leave behind. It's going to remain here while you pass on. But if you live for Christ now, death is only gain because you stand in the very presence of your Savior for all eternity. And so I encourage you, dear ones, find your delight and joy in the Lord. And you will find that doubt... Self-pity, discontentment, murmuring, and bitterness will have no place in your life. There's simply no room for enjoying the Lord and feeling sorry for yourself at the same time. There's simply no room for delighting in the Lord and being discontent with your lot in life at the same time. There's simply no room for thanking the Lord and murmuring against His providence at the same time. It's a matter of focus and perspective on life. Do you have merely an earthly perspective or do you have a heavenly perspective of this life? Paul was one who spoke from experience. He had learned, he says. He wasn't born with it. It wasn't imparted as a supernatural gift that he had all of a sudden like that. He learned to be content in all circumstances. And from his own personal experience, he writes this letter to encourage the saints in Philippi and to encourage us as God's people. For Paul had enemies. We expect enemies from outside the bounds of the church, but he had, it appears, enemies from within the church. And so will we. So will we. So did the prophets of old. So did the Lord Jesus Christ. So did the apostles. And he writes of this experience. From our text, I would have you note that Paul contrasts two types of preachers. Two types of preachers in Philippians 1, verses 15 through 17. Notice what he says. Some indeed preach Christ even of envy and strife, and some also of goodwill. The one preach Christ of contention, not sincerely, supposing to add affliction to my bonds, but the other of love, knowing that I am set for the defense of the gospel. The first group of preachers 
were those who preached Christ from a motivation of envy and strife, according to verse 15. Or as he says again concerning the same preachers in the next verse, from a motivation of contention and insincerity. Paul does not, and this is crucial to understanding this text, Paul does not condemn these preachers as those who had perverted the truth in any way. He does not condemn them. He does not point out their errors in doctrine, worship, or government. What he does, however, point out is that they were not motivated by a pure zeal for God's glory. They did not seek first and foremost the cause of Christ in their preaching. They did not have a burden and a love for others in their ministry, but rather were motivated more from personal glory and self-interests. They had envy. They wanted a name like the Apostle Paul. They promoted strife and contention amongst themselves, as did the disciples, you recall, in Luke 22:24, where we find these words amongst the disciples themselves. And there was also a strife among them, which of them should be accounted the greatest. And these ministers of whom Paul now speaks, Paul says they were insincere. That is, they did not preach from a pure conscience before God. These were the things that characterized these ministers as to their motivation and attitude, not as to their doctrine, worship, or government. The problem with these was their heart, not their profession. Nor does it appear... At this point, not their life either, but their heart. Calvin notes in his commentary on this particular text the following. He says, the former, he says, that is Paul, do not preach Christ purely. That is, the former preachers do not preach Christ purely because it was not a right zeal. For the term does not apply to doctrine, because it is possible that the man who teaches most purely may nevertheless not be of a sincere mind. Now that this impurity was in the mind and did not show itself in doctrine may be inferred from the context. Paul assuredly would have felt no pleasure in seeing the gospel corrupted. Yet he declares that he rejoices in the preaching of those persons while it was not simple or sincere. And so understand from the text, the emphasis upon the heart, not the profession of what they were teaching. We also note concerning the second type of preachers that are mentioned here. A second category of preachers that Paul mentions. Paul says, they, on the other hand, are moved and motivated by a good will for Christ and his glory in their heart. In verse 15, 
that they are moved and motivated by a love for the Lord Jesus Christ and a love for others. That's what compels them and moves them to fulfill their duty and their ministry. The glory of the Lord Jesus Christ. In this second class of preachers, you note, do not seek to add sorrow or affliction to Paul while he is imprisoned, as do the first group of preachers who are going out of their way from an attitude, from an attitude and heart that they have to add distress to Paul, but rather the second group of preachers. They acknowledge that Paul is suffering for the truth, for the gospel and the defense of the gospel. So the difference between these two classes of ministers in our text is not, again, their profession or their practice of the truth, but rather that which moves them and motivates them to minister and preach. Now, to be motivated by insincere and impure motives is a serious sin. Paul is not belittling the sin. It is indeed a serious sin. For one to fall into that temptation, one to fall into that trap, to take upon himself the ministry of the gospel from impure motives is to fall into the same trap that Balaam did, who for lust and greed was willing to become a false prophet. You see, it started with an attitude which eventually led to him actually in practice seeking to mislead the people of God and to bring a curse upon them. It began with a hard attitude of greed and lust and purely motivated in the ministry which God has given to them. And we as ministers today must constantly take our motives and our attitudes before the Lord in prayer and ask God to examine our hearts and to try our thoughts that we as well not fall into the temptation of being motivated by envy and greed to gain the approval and applause of men to gain a comfortable lifestyle, to gain a large ministry and name for ourselves, or to gain a platform in which we can exhibit whatever knowledge we have or exemplify various kinds of rhetorical skills so as to wow the people that hear us. We must continually examine our heart if we would be faithful to the Lord in every respect, not simply in profession and practice, but in attitude as well. The last, the last point from our text before we move on to our second main point is this, that Paul rejoices that the truth is preached. You see, that's what Paul is rejoicing in. He's not rejoicing in that the fact that these ministers are impurely motivated, but he is rejoicing in the fact that the truth is being proclaimed. 
And again, this was simply Paul's way of finding something in every circumstance in which to rejoice. Here are men who apparently do not like Paul. And Paul, whether by way of of supernatural revelation, it doesn't say how Paul came to understand the motives that moved these men. But perhaps that was how. By the Spirit's revelation, he discerned this. But regardless, he communicates even to the Philippians, there are ministers who do not like me. There are ministers who, who, whose attitude is one to cause me harm and distress. But his word to the Philippians was, I don't focus on that. I focus on the fact that the truth is being proclaimed and I rejoice in that. I rejoice in that. I would simply say, if someone might inquire or ask, why were these men not removed from office with those kinds of attitudes? Well, we could say the same thing about Judas. Why didn't Christ remove Judas, knowing that he was a devil from the beginning? Why wasn't he removed from office? Why was he appointed in the first place to that office? Well, the scripture and the normal and ordinary way to remove one from office is when one backslides and and departs from the truth by way of profession or practice. When they manifest that in their doctrine or in their life, then there can be censures brought by a church court. That's ordinarily the way in which we are to proceed. And to simply remove these men on the basis of whatever knowledge Paul had, Paul was not willing to do until they manifested that in their doctrine or life. Thus, I submit to you, dear ones, in Paul's rejoicing that these ministers who had insincere and impure motives, rejoicing in the fact that they proclaimed the truth, this is not an illustration of occasional hearing. Because even the Westminster Confession of Faith makes it clear. I'll just refer to it by memory rather than turning to it. But in Westminster Confession of Faith, chapter 27, section 3, there we are told that the efficacy of the sacraments, and we might say the efficacy, the effectiveness of the ordinances, does not depend upon the piety or the intention of the minister. It depends solely upon the Spirit of God who takes His Word and His ordinances and applies them to our hearts and lives. God works many times, dear ones, in spite of us. That doesn't necessarily confirm our ministry when we're in error. But He does work in spite of us. But we do see from this text that it was not a case of occasional hearing because they did proclaim the truth. They were 
preaching that which was consistent with the word of God and to attend upon the ministry of one who is faithfully preaching the truth is not occasional hearing. My second main point then is this, that there are other objections that some might offer, but these objections find no place of refuge for occasional hearing either. <clears throat> and I will not be exhaustive in the objections, but I will mention two. And they're both taken from passages of Scripture. The first one is taken from Second Kings 5.18. This is used by some to, to defend the practice of occasional hearing. Second Kings 5.18. Here we find Naaman, the Syrian who had been healed of his leprosy, coming back, pouring out his heart, testimony to the faithfulness of God before Elisha the prophet. He gives his testimony in verses 17 and 18 to Elisha. And it says, And Naaman said, Shall there not then, I pray thee, be given to thy servant two mules burden of earth? For thy servant will henceforth offer neither burnt offering nor sacrifice unto other gods, but unto the Lord. He wanted soil to be able to construct an altar there in Syria and not to bring an altar to God and not to bring sacrifices to any false god, not to worship the pagan idols that were prominent in Syria. That's his testimony. In verse 18, we find the passage that many would focus upon with regard to occasional hearing. In this thing, the Lord pardoned thy servant, Naaman continues, that when my master goeth into the house of Rimon, when I bow down myself in the house of Rimon, the Lord pardoned thy servant in this thing. And so you can surmise from what Naaman is asking, the Lord pardon me when... My master, the king, goes into the house of idolatry and I in my civil function must accompany me. And when he leans and puts his hand upon my shoulder and, and steadies himself and vows, the Lord pardon me when I bow with him. Well, I would say, with regard to this particular passage, that if this passage proves occasional hearing, that, that it is all right to worship in a pagan temple, to worship the gods, to bow down to the false gods, it proves too much. Because everywhere else in the word of God condemns that. That is not what we are to draw from this passage that God approves of false worship or worshiping a false God. That's ridiculous. This was not occasional hearing because Naaman was not going to worship at all. He was going to fulfill a civil duty. 
And it landed him in a place I'm sure that he didn't want to be in. But it was to fulfill a civil duty. Verse 17 implies by way of testimony that he is not going to offer sacrifices to any other god. Calvin in his commentary makes the point that that the implication is that he bore testimony of this to the king as well by his building an altar, by his offering only sacrifices to God that he also bore witness to the king so that again the king realized he was not going to worship. He was not hiding this matter in his heart. And so this was a civil courtesy, but not a case of worship and occasional hearing. The second passage is found in Luke chapter 9, verse 49. The second objection is Luke 9:49 and verse 50 as well. And John answered and said, Master, we saw one casting out devils in thy name, and we forbade him, because he followeth not with us. And Jesus said unto him, Forbid him not, for he that is not against us is for us. Again, the context, the disciples ran upon one, came upon one who was casting out Demons in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, and apparently successfully so. And because this one was not in an, within the immediate circle, the, uh, one of Christ's disciples, the disciples say, we forbade him, we forbade him from, from casting them out because he didn't follow with us in our group. And the Lord said, that's not what you're to do, forbid him. Because if he's not against us, he is for us. This is not, again, a passage that can be used to support occasional hearing because nothing in the text implies that this man was teaching anything contrary to what Christ taught. Nothing. Jesus does not, even though Jesus being omniscient, knowing who, no doubt, they were speaking of, he does not criticize his doctrine, his worship, or his form of church government. He does not criticize him in any of those areas. He does not forbid him because he's a bad example in life to the cause of Christ. So this is not a case of occasional hearing. <clears throat> Perhaps the disciples were motivated similarly to Joshua in Numbers chapter 11. Verses 26 through 29, when the Spirit was poured out upon the 70 elders, and two of them, Eldad and Medad, were not with the rest, <clears throat> but were in the camp. And they prophesied outside of the midst of the 70 elders. And Joshua said, forbid them, Lord. Forbid them, Moses, from prophesying. And Moses says, would you have them stop prophesying for my sake because you're jealous for my name? I would that all God's people were prophets. And so perhaps the disciples were similarly motivated. He doesn't walk with us, Lord. He doesn't walk with you in this immediate circle. 
But dear ones, we do not lay claim to any special title of being the only faithful church upon the face of the earth. We believe by God's grace that there are 7,000 who have not bowed the knee to Baal. And wherever they are, and wherever they steadfastly hold to the covenanted truths, which have been revealed to us in the word of God in faithful standards, we unite hand in hand with them and join with them in promoting a covenanted reformation. The third and final point is this. Historical objections provide no place of refuge for occasional hearing. Some have offered John Knox as an example of one who practiced occasional hearing because he preached in Episcopal churches. You remember our previous sermon on occasional hearing that Jesus and the apostles preached in synagogues as well. But they didn't go to hear false preaching. They went, and what they did when they went to synagogues, they were the preacher. They were the ones who proclaimed the truth. And they pointed out the errors of those in the synagogue. And that's why they found themselves being stoned, being tried to... Uh, having tried to push them off, as in the case of Christ, off the brim of a hill. That is why they met the opposition they did, because they preached faithfully. And I would simply say that if I were invited to preach in another Reformed church, any of those that I mentioned earlier that are unfaithful, I would take the opportunity to do so, provided I could preach the Word of God in all of its glory and faithfulness and point out the errors of that particular church and affirm the truth, I would take the opportunity to do so. And that is not occasional hearing. And you could come and hear me preach in that church. What about Mr. Knox? Well, listen to just a brief testimony concerning Mr. Knox, and you judge whether this is occasional hearing. After the death of Cardinal Beaton, I'm reading from Scott's Worthies, uh, page 49, and sections, excerpts from 49 to 52. After the death of Cardinal Beaton, he retired into the castle of St. Andrews, where he preached to the garrison for some time. But the castle being obliged to surrender to the French, he became their prisoner and was sent aboard the galleys. Having made his escape about the year 1550, he went to England, where he preached for several years in Berwick, Newcastle, and London with great applause. His fame at last reached the ears of King Edward VI, who offered him a bishopric, which he rejected as contrary to his principles. During his stay in England, he was called before the council and required to answer the following questions. Number one, why he refused the benefice provided for him at London, to which he answered, 
that his conscience witnessed to him that he might profit more in some other place than in London. The second question, whether he thought that no Christian might serve in the ecclesiastical ministration according to the laws and rights of the realm of England. His answer, that many things needed reformation in the ministry of England without which no minister did or could discharge his duty before God. And third question, if kneeling at the Lord's table was not indifferent. The question is, what, isn't it simply an indifferent thing if we kneel as opposed to sitting around the table? His answer, that Christ's action was most perfect. What Christ did in instituting the ordinance was most perfect. That it was most safe to follow his example and that kneeling was a human invention. Occasional hearing. Listen to these final words of Mr. Knox. Oh, let me add this. While in Frankfurt, he wrote his admonition to England and was soon involved in troubles because he opposed the English liturgy and refused to communicate after the manner it enjoined. He refused to communicate or worship according to the manner which it enjoined. And the last thing I would read for you is from a letter he, he wrote. He talks concerning, speaks concerning the service book of England. He says, Our captain Christ Jesus and Satan his adversary are now at open defiance. Their banners are displayed and the trumpet is blown on both sides for assembling their armies. Our master calleth upon his own and that with vehemency that they may depart from Babylon. Yea, he threatened death and damnation to such as either in their forehead or right hand have the mark of the beast. And a portion of this mark are all those dregs of papistry which are left in your great book of England. That is, crossing in baptism, kneeling at the Lord's table, mumbling or singing of the litany. On and on, any one jot of which diabolical inventions will I never counsel any man to use. Occasional hearing? I think not. What about the Westminster Divines, the second historical objection? Didn't the Westminster Divines, the Presbyterians within the Westminster Assembly, practice occasional hearing inasmuch as there were independents that were apart? of the Westminster Assembly as well. Did they not do so by listening to the preaching in the assembly of these independent ministers? Well, I would simply note for you that before this assembly came together to begin to work on the confession of faith and all the subsequent documents, the very first document that was drafted was the Solemn League and Covenant, which bound all of those within that assembly each week to acknowledge that they were bound to that particular covenant. They were to, to acknowledge that, to swear it. They were to swear to strive and to endeavor the nearest conformity and uniformity, I should say, uniformity, in doctrine, worship, discipline, and government. They were bound to that. 
And so when the independents, having taken that covenant, the Presbyterians, seeing this as a time of reformation, believed that they were not in any way at that point in time compromising their principles of occasional hearing because these independents were striving for and working toward reformation, had bound themselves in covenant to do so. <clears throat> there was willingness, at least from their lips, the lips of the independents as they swore the covenant to be reformed according to the reformation that had already been achieved in Scotland. That was the goal. That was how it was understood. This was not occasional hearing. These were men who had covenanted to hold the same principles. Well, if that was occasional hearing and if they were guilty of doing so, how do we explain the subsequent practice of Presbyterians who were actually a part of that assembly in Scotland? How do we explain the fact that faithful protesters refused to meet in the same assembly with resolutioners who were Presbyterians? They didn't disagree in this case, over doctrine, worship, or government, they disagreed over the Solemn League and Covenant because the protesters said that the resolutioners had perjured themselves in allowing men who would not take the covenant into places of authority and power in church and state. That was the issue. And they refused to have communion with them in the same assembly. That's where we see their principles worked out. Subsequently, other faithful covenanted Presbyterian ministers like John Brown of Flumphrey, Robert McWard and Donald Cargill, all students of Samuel Rutherford, together with Richard Cameron, James Rinnick and David Houston of Ireland, refused to countenance the ministry of Presbyterian ministers. Presbyterian men, other Reformed ministers, they refused to countenance their ministry because they had themselves either fallen guilty in compromising the Solemn League and Covenant or were supporting and encouraging and holding up the hands and the arms of those who took the indulgences in compromising the Solemn League and Covenant. For those brethren who are part of the Reformed Presbyterian Church of North America, I simply cite for them from their own standards Reformation principles exhibited that they too were opposed to occasional hearing. In their declarative testimony, page 75, the 1807 edition, it says that occasional communion may be, this is, these are, I should qualify this, it says, we therefore condemn the following errors and testify against all who maintain them. Now, that occasional communion may be ex extended to persons who should not be received to constant fellowship. 
occasional hearing, occasional communion, condemned by the Reformed Presbyterian Church of North America. And I close, dear ones, with this quote. From David Steele, a short vindication of our covenanted reformation. He says, we believe that the fountain and origin of all our sinful departures from the covenanted work of reformation will be found in the practice of what is well, too well marked in our history and commonly called occasional hearing. Can any person give a reason why he should not hear constantly where he can hear occasionally? Or can anyone at the same time testify against a church for unfaithfulness and wait upon its ministry without evident inconsistency and neutralizing his testimony? Will he succeed in recovering backsliders by following them in their backsliding course? We distinguish here between such as are advancing and those who are retrograding, as our witnessing fathers always did and toward which parties our deportment ought to be different. To those advancing, we extend a helping hand, but from those declining, we are commanded to turn away, according to 1 Timothy 3, 1 through 5. If I may hear a minister in his pulpit in another fellowship, why may I not in my own pulpit, that is, hear the same minister? Then exchange of pulpits necessarily follows. Invitation to a seat in church courts and then open communion and all sanctioned and sanctified by the euphonious phrase Christian courtesy. But how will Christ look upon such motley multitudes? Can they bury his blood-sealed truth and conceal their hypocrisy under good words and fair speeches from his eyes like unto a flame of fire? Impossible. But we ought to have the mind of Christ, according to 1 Corinthians 2.16. To us, the logical connection of the consecutive steps above merely noted is quite obvious. The inevitable tendency of occasional hearing and its ultimate issue is open communion, the overthrow of all creeds, confessions, and testimonies, all subordinate standards, and final apostasy. It's a slippery slope. But if you were to investigate where churches began to decline, one of the steps of declining was occasional hearing. God help us to preserve the truth which he has bestowed upon us by seeing this as a sin which we must avoid at all costs. Please stand with me in prayer. Our gracious God and Father, we do thank Thee for Thy truth. We do praise Thee that Thou hast been merciful to us, for we deserve not the least blessing because we have, Father, been enemies of Thine. But in thy mercy thou hast drawn us unto thyself and given us an ear to hear and a heart to believe the truth which has been given to us. 
And Lord, as thou hast given us light, we have sought by thy grace to walk in that light. And Father, we thank thee, for it is not our doing, but thine. We pray, Father, that thou would help us to stand firm on this matter of occasional hearing, that thou would grant us the grace and the mercy to walk faithfully before thee, recognizing that if we cannot stand, Father, even before family and friends in this age and at this time, how will we stand if real persecution comes our way? God, help us. Lord, supply the strength we need to love our brethren who are walking disorderly and to give a faithful and consistent testimony against their backsliding and unfaithfulness by not occasionally attending their churches or the ministries of their ministers. We ask our Father that Thou would, would encourage, Father, Thy people this day that to suffer for the name of Christ is something for which we should leap for joy. Let us walk in this truth this day. Let us not look upon our trials, but upon reasons to be thankful and to rejoice in Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen. This Reformation audio track is a production of Stillwater's Revival Books. You are welcome to make copies and give them to those in need. SWRB makes thousands of classic Reformation resources available, free and for sale, in audio, video, and printed formats. It is likely that the sermon or book that you just listened to is also available on cassette or video, or as a printed book or booklet. Our many free resources, as well as our complete mail-order catalog, containing thousands of classic and contemporary Puritan and Reform books, tapes, and videos at great discounts, is on the web at www.swrb.com. We can also be reached by email at swrb at swrb.com, by phone at 780-450-3730, by fax at 780-468-1096, or by mail at 4710-37A Avenue, Edmonton, that's E-D-M-O-N-T-O-N, Alberta, abbreviated capital A, capital B, Canada, T6L3T5. You may also request a free printed catalog. And remember that John Calvin, in defending the Reformation's regulative principle of worship, or what is sometimes called the scriptural law of worship, commenting on the words of God, which I commanded them not, neither came into my heart, from his commentary on Jeremiah 7.31, writes, God here cuts off from men every occasion for making evasions, since he condemns by this one phrase, I have not commanded them, whatever the Jews devised. There is then no other argument needed to condemn superstitions than that they are not commanded by God. For when men allow themselves to worship God according to their own fancies, and attend not to his commands, they pervert true religion. And if this principle was adopted by the papists, all those fictitious modes of worship in which they absurdly exercise themselves would fall to the ground. It is indeed a horrible thing for the papists to seek to discharge their duties towards God by performing their own superstitions. There is an immense number of them, as it is well known, and as it manifestly appears. Were they 
To admit this principle, that we cannot rightly worship God except by obeying his word, they would be delivered from their deep abyss of error. The prophet's words, then, are very important. When he says that God had commanded no such thing, and that it never came to his mind, as though he had said that men assume too much wisdom when they devise what he never required, nay, what he never knew.